We are in Hebrews chapter 12. I believe about verse 15 or so. Yes, sir. Reading Hebrews chapter 12, we get to verse 14. Kind of you're thinking, uh, it's kind of a continuous thought from 14 to 15. But Hebrews 12, 14, follow peace with all men. That is, follow, seek after, strive for peace with all men. And holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Uh, looking diligently, looking at ideal, obviously, of we're going to focus on our lives now, pay attention to our lives. That is, pay attention to how we're living, how we're walking figuratively. Just uh, not going through life haphazardly, but giving it the due diligence that it deserves. Diligent, of course, has the idea of getting forth the effort and putting forth uh, an effort and striving. So we're going to uh, we're going to put forth the effort and pay attention now to how we're living and walking and whether we are in fact living this holy life. I believe going back to verse 14. So we're to look diligent, lest any man fail of the grace of God. This is only one verse in the book of Hebrews, and I have not counted them, but there's a bunch of them all throughout the book that just disprove again this whole idea of once saved, always saved. But he's writing to Christians here in verse 15, and he's telling them it is possible that we can still fall short of God's grace and, and be lost. And so that's why it's so important to give due diligence to your life and how you're conducting yourself and how you're living. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Uh, most will agree that the root of bitterness here is maybe it's an um, maybe it's a reference to an attitude or a state of mind. Most have the idea here that root of bitterness, the root is actually a reference to a person, not any particular person, but just any person who would be. Uh, corrupt is the ideal here, and they go back to Gen- uh, I'm sorry to Deuteronomy 29:18 is one scripture to help reinforce that, where it talks about a root and being a person there, and of course a number of times in the passages it talks about uh, a person in terms of a root. Even Christ at one point is referred to as a root in the Old Testament, and so it has the idea of lest any corrupt person would spring up uh, now and trouble you. And not uh, hinder your walk spiritually now. Not only that, but notice he says in verse 15, and thereby many be defiled. So one one person even can have a lot of influence on others, and one person can have a lot of influence for good. But you also learn here in verse 15, one person can have a lot of influence for the bad as well, a lot of a negative influence. So He's simply telling them, now pay attention to what you're doing, how you're living, your, you know, your thoughts, keep all of that under self-control. Otherwise, you would fall short of the grace of God and uh, don't let the corrupt person spring up among your number and uh, defile others because of that. He says, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. It's interesting, too, the King James I'm reading from uses the word uh, profane and we think of profane sometimes as different things maybe profane speech or something like that and if you ask a person you know are, are you are you profane person are your thoughts profane they're probably going to be quick to say no 
I hope they would be quick to say no. But on the other hand, profane is not something that's limited to profane speech or something like that. The, the word profane actually has the idea of far from God. Now, there are a lot of people who are profane, if you look at it that way, simply that their their lives are far from God. But he says, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Was Esau a profane person or was he a fornicator or was he both? Well, he was obviously a profane person from the language. I think there's just some discussion as to whether he was a fornicator as well. Uh, because as Esau, does that refer back to the profane person only or to the fornicator as well? And he says in verse 17, And for you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he rejected, uh, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. That might be a difficult verse. I don't think it really is. You, you know, at first you wonder, well, how could he find, how could he seek repentance, but been unable to find it, even though he sought repentance carefully with tears. I think the ideal is here is not seeking repentance on his part. If, if you read the account from Genesis, he actually did regret it later and did have a change of mind. So that was it. I think the point here, uh, afterward he, he was rejected and afterward he was seeking repentance. That is a change of mind now. He was seeking repentance on, on uh, I'm drawing a blank now, on Isaac's part. Uh, but he didn't find that. The point is the decision was made. The blessing had been given and afterward he regretted it and sought a change of, of mind in that, but it wasn't possible. Change simply wasn't possible because the blessing had already been given, of course, to Jacob. So now he tells us in verse 18, and actually, let's, let's take a little side trip before we get into verse 18. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 19 and 20, and it's kind of a, a somewhat lengthy reading, but I want to read Exodus 19 and 20. Uh, Exodus chapters 19 and 20 because it really sets the stage for this portion of Hebrews 12 and if you are not familiar with Exodus 19 and 20 uh, maybe uh, Hebrews 12 here doesn't have the full meaning it would have otherwise because look at some of the phrases that we're going to see in Hebrews 12 and we're going to look at them in Exodus 19 and 20 and maybe point some of those out and then It'll make more sense when we go back to Hebrews. Look at Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim, had come to, to the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. Mount Sinai, obviously. Verse 3. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of God, and tell the children of Israel. So notice in verse 3, God called to Moses from the mountain. Okay, that's significant. Verse 4, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Now, when he talks about you'll be a priest and a holy nation, he's talking about the time of the Old Testament, obviously. Under the old law, they're going to be a priest uh, and, and a holy nation, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
Verse 7, So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you. Notice now, he says, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the, of the people to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around. It's, notice it's significant now in verse 12. You shall set bounds for the people all around saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. All right, he's going to be put to death, but how is he going to be put to death? Uh, the whole idea around the mountain, see, it's, it's so holy now as God is meeting with Moses there. This person's to be put to death, but they're not even going to touch him to kill him. Because they wouldn't be able to come near him to do that. So he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people. And they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not uh, come near your wives. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountains. All of that is significant in verse 16. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud. So all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was a, a completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. That's significant as well when you get back to Hebrews. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord uh, called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain to consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Away, get down, and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not uh, let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people of God, and he spoke to them. See, when you're coming near in the presence of God, and see what he said about the mountain even, the idea that this is holy and sacred, and that's why he's talking about even washing their clothes in, ahead of time and things. Obviously, it's a symbolic purification, but it's the idea of making yourself pure as you come before God. Sort of has a parallel for us today, does it not? And God spoke all these words, verse uh, 1 of chapter 20, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me 
Now, the iniquity, that is the consequences of sin. It doesn't mean the younger ones would inherit the sin. But showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you work, verse 9. Ten, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger within the gates. For in six days the Lord made heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. The rest of the seventh day. And then he continues in verses 12. Uh, through 17, giving what often simply referred to as the Ten Commandments there. Verse 18, Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, again that's significant in 18, the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood far off. And then they said to Moses, You speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. You see, they, they felt because of God's holiness and because of their sin, they really couldn't even approach God directly in this way, and they understood that. So Moses is, I guess, like a go-between here. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off. But Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Um, and then the Lord said to Moses in verse 22, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, Ye have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me. Gods of silver or gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. And we'll stop there and then go back to Hebrews. So you get a picture of what's taking place at Mount Sinai there in Exodus 19 and 20 when Moses was receiving the law from God. And now you get to Hebrews. And what's he doing now in Hebrews 12? Uh, about verse 18 and following here. He's he's drawing, or really, he's using words, really, to paint a contrast. Basically, he's painting a contrast between uh, well, the old law and the new. He's not really painting a contrast so much as the old law and the new, although that'd be a part of it. He's painting a contrast, really, between uh, Sinai and the New Testament ideal of Zion, but even more than that, the heavenly Zion. Sometimes we sing a song, do we not? Oh, Zion, Zion, I long thy gates to see. And he's really drawing a contrast now between what the people experienced when God was giving the law to Moses, and contrasting that with what they were able in the book of Hebrews, but us today also are able to experience under the new law now. And... You know, all throughout the book of Hebrews, we've seen this idea of better, better, better. And really, he's telling them, you come to something better even than Mount Zion. You met with something better than that now. You're meeting with God now in his church, which was everything in the Old Testament, remember, was simply a foreshadowing or prefigured that. Now you're meeting in the true thing, John 4, 24. You're meeting in that church now where God dwells and you long for this heavenly Zion now. So in verse 18, For you're not come to the mountain that might be touched. Alright? This was a physical mountain we read about in verse 19 and 20. Then they could touch it. Now they were not allowed to touch it. But it was possible that they could. And remember he said you would be, they would be stoned or they would be killed, either stoned or shot with an arrow if they did. 
But in verse 18, you're not coming in the mountain that might be touched and that burned with fire. That's what we just read about it, is it not? Nor under blackness and darkness and tempest. See, he's saying this is, you're not, you're not, you're not coming to God now in that mountain. The way Moses did and the way they saw back then with all of the fire and the smoke and the darkness. See, and the sound of a trumpet. Uh, you could go to Exodus 19:16 with that, 16 through 19. And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice uh, they that heard entreated that the words should not be spoken to them anymore. Remember they said, uh, we'll listen to you, Moses, but we, you know, we can't hear from God. Because we, the way we fear God, we can't do that. We couldn't bear to do that, the idea of enduring it. And so that's why in verse 20, if you're reading verse 20, 21, I don't know about your, probably most translations are going to have that as a parenthetical expression, verse 20 and 21. And a, when you see a parenthetical expression in your Bible, it is a part of the original text. It doesn't mean it's not a part of the text. It's just a parenthetical expression. It's almost like a, a side note, if you will, that helps explain what's just been said. So see in verse 19, he says, And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard uh, entreated that the words should not be spoken to them anymore. Now verse 20, For they could not endure that which was commanded. That is the way in which it was given to them. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. Again, that's what we just read now in Exodus 19 and 20. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake because of what was happening and because of the sight of it all and because of the sound of it all and because God was talking to him. And in one sense, you see, he's coming into the presence of God. Do you ever think maybe we should fear and quake more when we come into the presence of God? That really is a question, not a statement. But do you think perhaps we should, when we come in the presence of God and come even as we do when we come here to worship, do you think perhaps we should fear and quake maybe more than we do? Not that we should all enter the building shaking and trembling, but the fact that we maybe should have a greater attitude of reverence toward God than we do. I believe it's Psalm 89.5. It might be 7. It's one of those two. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of, by all those that are about him or around him. That verse alone should cause us to stop and think, shouldn't it, about our attitude when we come together to worship. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints, and to be had in reverence by all those that are around him. That might be a slight paraphrase, but it's not much different. Psalm 89.5, I think it's 7. It's one of the two. Verse 7, Verse seven thank you, sir. Uh, but see, he has the idea of approaching. We're going to come into the presence of God to worship him. And I've mentioned before, I, I still find it sometimes difficult to worship. And maybe that's just me. But the idea that here I am, this little finite little human being, one among billions along on the earth, and here I'm trying to come into the presence of an almighty eternal God who is my creator and worship him. I don't know. Sometimes that might be easier said than done. Or maybe it's just me and something I need to keep working on. I don't know. 
So terrible was the sight, verse 21, that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But you are come. Now here's he's painting his contrast. 18 through 21, he said, this is what they did. This was, this was Moses' experience. This is what they saw. Now verse 22, but you are coming to Mount Zion. You see the greatness of this? They, they saw this and they feared God and they trembled. You and I, though, right now, we've come into something much better than that. See, we've come now to Mount Zion. Not the physical now, but we have come to the spiritual. And the spiritual Zion, the spiritual Jerusalem, which has really, I think, a double meaning. First, probably the ideal of the church itself, but then eventually uh, uh, heaven really, I think, is the ultimate meaning of it or the ultimate ideal here. Because he said, you are come past tense. Well, they're not, in other words, you have already come. Well, they weren't in heaven, but they were in the church, the spiritual Zion. And then one day we will be in heaven, in Zion, of course, eventually. But you're coming to Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God. See, he says, the heavenly Jerusalem and to an innumerable company of angels. We're in that now. We're able to experience something far better than they did. Again, if we're if we're in that now, doesn't it maybe doesn't it only make sense that perhaps we should uh, make sure we have the attitude of fear? And I'm not just talking about be afraid, but the attitude of respect toward God that we ought to have. Um, yes, sir. Right. Everybody else had to stand in place of it near it. And you know, here it's saying, you all are able to come on it. You're able to come on it now, right? You reached it. You were able to stay. Before you, well, Moses didn't stay. But before they witnessed, you know, they saw what they did when Moses went. But now they're there. We are. And we're there to stay, right? If we... If we look diligently so that we don't fail of the grace of God. You look at Galatians 4.26. But Jerusalem which is above is free. Which is the mother of us all now. You see the Jerusalem which is above. It's not talking about this physical Jerusalem. It's, um, it's talking about uh, heaven itself. Oh Zion, Zion, I long thy gates to see. See when shall I dwell in thee? Isn't that our longing? Isn't that our desire? And what we're looking forward to and what we're striving for? Uh, uh, but you are come, verse 22, into Mount Zion and under the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, you see. Uh, and you could discuss that a lot if you wanted to in the ideal of angels. and um, Are angels present when we worship? When we come together, are the angels present? Are the angels observing what we're doing? I don't know that I'd be too dogmatic about it, but yes, I believe they are. And I would go to Paul's letter to the church at Corinth even when he addresses the conduct in their assemblies. And at one point he says, because of the angels. I can't give you the exact scripture reference for that, but it's in, it's, it's in there. I think it's 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, we're talking about the head, the women and their head coverings. And he's telling them you do this because of the angels. I don't know what that phrase would mean if it were not for the fact that the angels were in their presence and worship and uh, and observing their worship. 
Uh, if that's the case, are they today? Well, that's something to think about. Uh, and you know, the Bible tells us angels rejoice when, when someone repents and is saved, do they not? Now, how are they going to know that? Unless they must be to some, they must be observing. Somehow they know. Somehow they know. Uh, verse 22, But you're coming to Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. You see, now we are in the church. We're, everything in the Old Testament is simply prophesied of that. We are, we are in it now. We're, the, we're in the true church now. The true tabernacle as we've seen in the book of Hebrews. The church of the firstborn uh, which are written in heaven and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Uh, the church of the firstborn uh, I think it's probably a reference to the Christians and their names are written in heaven verse 23 and to God the judge of all. See the church uh, the church I think, and to God is still a reference now to the church. At one point in Acts 20 and 28, there the church is referred to as the church of God. When Paul's speaking to the elders from Ephesus, he said, to the church of God, which he has purchased with his blood. Is it a reference to God the Father purchasing the church with his blood and that he gave his son to do it? Or is it the fact that Christ is deity, so he would be God as well? Well, I think it's talking about the God the Father there. Back in Hebrews 12, 23, God is going to judge us. God the Father is going to judge us, is he not? It's, it's, but on the other hand, God will judge us through the agency of his Son. You know, it's often said when you do something through the agency of another, it's said that you do it. So in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he has done, whether it be good or bad. But in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's like authority is given unto him, and he will be our judge. God, the Father, is judging us, but he's doing that through the agency of his Son come judgment day. That only makes sense, doesn't it? It's Christ who's walked on this earth. It's Christ who is tempted like we're tempted. It's Christ who is... It's not that God doesn't... God the Father... It's not that God doesn't know, but Christ has experienced it First hand, see, he ex God the Father knows, but I, can, couldn't you say, wouldn't, would it be fair to say that, that Christ experienced it firsthand in a way that God the Father did not? Simply because he came here, and he lived it. See, he went through it, he experienced it, even the physical death, all of that, he went through all of that. And so we're going to be judged by God the Father, but that's going to take place through the agency of Christ his Son. Uh, and, and who all who all's in this church now? Who's in the church now? Have you ever thought about that? Who's in the church now? We say, well, when somebody's baptized, the Lord's added them to his church. Acts 2.47. Well, that's right. Is there anyone else in the church? Yes, but be careful how you answer it. No one alive today is in the Lord's church without being baptized into that church, period. There's no other way to enter the church today. There's no back door. And you're not going to be allowed to crawl through the window. I'm not trying to be funny, but some people are making back doors in, you know, in the church and they want to crawl through the window. 
There's only one way in, and that's, that's when you're baptized into that body, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. But is there anyone else in the church today? This is something to think about. Look at, look at verse 23. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men, not just men, but just, these men are just, all right? The spirits of just men made perfect. Now, who are these just men made perfect? I mean, it's, it's, to me, it must be someone else other than the Christians living in the time of Hebrews. They're, they're already mentioned in there. But when he says just men made perfect, I think he's talking about all those people who lived under the old law uh, before the church came into existence. But yet they followed God. They were righteous people. And now they are made perfect. Perfect. Remember, the word perfect here means mature or complete or reaching its in, a desired or intended goal. Now, these people who lived under the old law and they offered their sacrifices and all that, when did they reach their intended goal? When did they reach their desired goal of actually being righteous? It's when Christ died on the cross, Hebrews 9.15. And they were just men made perfect, accomplishing what they desired and coming to their desired goal when Christ went to the cross. I, I'm of the ideal here that the just men made perfect as people who lived under the old law, but were made perfect when Christ died. And his point here is before Christianity, before Christ died, you people are still less than perfect, meaning you still have not reached your desired goal. You're striving for this, but before Christ, you haven't reached it. Still, remember, he's trying to get these people, don't go back into Judaism. And he says, under Judaism, you weren't made perfect. You were only made perfect when Christ died, but now you're in that church. Uh, uh, well... I'm not going to talk about this, but I'll throw this out there. Back in Acts, the second chapter, and the Lord added to them, some translations say, or the Lord added to the church daily, such as those, or those who are being saved, or such as should be saved, the King James. The Lord added to the church daily in Acts 2, and the church began in Acts 2. Then what were they being added to? That's just something for you to think about. But anyway, uh, it, I'm not saying the church existed prior to Acts 2. I'm not saying that. I'm just... The idea of thinking, something to think about. Verse 24, And to Jesus, the mediator of the new law, or the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh, oh, here's that word again, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See, Jesus, the mediator. And, you know, and sometimes we quote from Paul's letter to Timothy, there's one mediator between men and God, the man Christ Jesus. And we use that verse to say that that's why we're able to pray to God now through Christ the mediator. Well, that's true. But when you talk about a mediator, isn't that much more than just our prayer? I mean, here he says he's the mediator of a new covenant or a better covenant. Christ is that mediator. The ideal is, how is it, not, not just prayer, but how is it that we're able to even have fellowship with God at all? See, if I've got sin in my life, how can I have fellowship with God at all? How can I approach God? Now, I'm not talking about just in prayer. I'm talking about how can I be a child of God? 
How can I have fellowship with God? How can I commune with God? How can I approach God? How can I be a child of God? Doesn't that all take place because of Christ and what he has done? See, so in that sense, he's the mediator, not just in terms of prayer, but he's the mediator because he is the go-between that allows us to come to God. Uh, John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, no man cometh unto the Father, but by me. Now, and in the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel, there's your word better, We've already talked about Abel's blood, and among other things, Abel's blood, Abel's blood is still crying out today, and it cries for vengeance, for justice to be done. Christ's blood speaks and cries out for something better as it cries out for mercy and forgiveness. Isn't that what Christ's blood is for us? What it represents, the ideal of forgiveness. Um, we are going to stop there. That's a good stopping place for now. So we're going to stop at 24. Next time we'll pick up at verse 25.